You know what's really funny, Mike? We had a proverb that was like the internal call to battle at the developer platform team at Uber, which was actually an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go, go alone. alone. If you want to go far, you go together. Go together. It's literally the top of my notion board for the function. You're listening to the Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high growth disruption, the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And on this episode, we have our second ever Office Hours session. Mike Scott is an old LinkedIn friend of mine, and he also has his own awesome podcast, How to Be Moderately Successful. He has recently started doing a lot of things for the first time, and he has questions. So we're going to dive right in. Mike, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what brings you to this point, and what it is that you're currently working on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So quite recently, my business, which was called Nona Digital, was acquired by a company called Yoko. When we were acquired, we were about 40 people. We were quite a specialist software development agency. We focused on fintech and blockchain scale-ups. So our definition of scale-up was basically companies that had hit product market fit and had raised a fair amount of money. So let's say north of 20 million US. And the reason for that was just the specific problems at that specific size we were very good at addressing and we had quite a strong niche there. So that led to us being acquired by a client of ours called Yoko, which is a fantastic fintech that operates in Africa, but is funded out of Silicon Valley and the Netherlands, a few places quite a significant scale up now. And as part of the acquisition, it was very easy for us to map out every single person at Nona's role going into Yoko, except me, right? So like as a CEO with no formal training, like I started my first business when I was 16, I didn't go to university. I've done like a number of businesses, had a number of exits, but I'm completely informally taught a hundred percent experience, zero academic training. So I understand small business very well. And I understand leading leadership teams very well. And I understand small business operating systems very well, but I have no idea what to do in a big business. So it was really difficult. Actually, there was this weird moment during the DD, which was like, Hey, everyone has got huge value coming into the parent company, except me guys. And I won't take any offense if you just don't bring me along. And they laughed and they said, no, no, we'll find a place. And I was like, I'm not being funny. Like, I'm not going to lead the business. So I don't know what to do. What that led to was this role that I've taken on, which is head of product partnerships and Web3. Now the Web3 part, we won't be discussing today. That's quite clear for me. But this product partnerships role has opened up an entire universe to me, right? And it's quite an unknown space, quite a new space, but it deeply important space in at least fintech companies. And what I'd love to discuss with you guys today is how to win at this role, because there's actually very little available on the internet and in the world on like how to be awesome at product partnerships. I'm hoping we can get into some dirty details around product partnerships today. We should also talk, Mike, about your position in terms of a founder facilitating an exit to an equal sized or larger sized company. I would suspect that you are not alone in this journey. This confusion of like, where do I fit? What role do I play? I've actually seen a couple of companies that I've advised to go through this journey. One founder I'm thinking of in particular was very emotionally attached to his baby. It's his sweetheart. He's built it with his blood, sweat and tears and had a certain vision for where it would go, how fast it would go. And I think to this day, it continues to be very frustrated by how it's being operated and its potential. And I think he's hit most of his targets. He's getting the commercial side of it. That's looked after. Yeah. But he's still unhappy and still really wants it to go well. And understandably so. 
because he's emotionally wrapped up in that. And so it is a difficult transition. To be completely honest, it's very refreshing not to be ultimately responsible for everything for the first time in my life. It's pretty great. The founders of this business are very impressive. They've built an incredible business and I'm learning a lot. I think I have a lot to offer coming in with a small business mindset, but there's so much. I am realizing that there is just so much I don't know. So I'm loving the learning opportunity. It's pretty great. Also worth noting, before we go into the product partnership side, you were saying to me, Mike, a couple of weeks ago, this is your first job, really. You've been a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. You've always been the founder. And through this acquisition, you have become an employee for the first time. For the first time in my life. And so there's obviously a learning curve there. <laughs> yeah. First time as an employee, first time in a larger scale-up organization, first time doing product partnerships. So I think we all feel that being on the zone of learning, but you must be very deep into that at the moment. Yeah. And, and loving it, right? It's pretty weird at like 40 years old. I'm 40 this year. And first time I've ever been employed at 40 years old is kind of strange. The entrepreneurial journey is really strange and upside down and topsy turvy, right? It's not a straight line. Like people tell you, you know, leave school, get a job, work through that career ladder. I had my first apartment in my own name at 26. I just bought my first car maybe four years ago. I'm 40 now, 41 in May next year. And I lived in my parents' house for way too long and <laughs> moved into my friend's place who had young kids early. And to look at my journey, you go, what the hell is this guy doing? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I totally resonate with that. And it's super cool. And I guess when like when you're an entrepreneur, I guess you're indexing around different things. You aren't necessarily indexing around a linear path. You're indexing around whatever you have to do at the time. Whereas if you're indexing for like a career, it just takes a very different form. Yeah. But I suspect my kids, I've got very young kids. I suspect that my journey to their generation will be a hell of a lot more common and a hell of a lot more familiar. I don't think it'll be the fringe case. I think it'll be more the norm than the exception. We had Dan Brockwell on, who's the founder of a community called Early Work, which is really a career community for ambitious Gen Z folks. And it's fascinating how much more entrepreneurial they are. This concept of having side hustles and starting businesses while you're at university and everything has become very much normalized and the tools and infrastructure are much stronger than they used to be. That's exciting. Your first question you noted down here for us is what is this role of product partnerships in today's world. Yeah, so the question for today's discussion is not so much what is product partnerships, it's more about how do you objectively measure the impact. Yoko is a fintech business, effectively it's a payment processing business. It's quite an African specific problem that it's solving. There is a very high card penetration in Africa, but there's a very low card acceptance network in Africa. So even though the vast majority of South Africans have got a card, the majority of merchants actually don't have the means or don't want to accept card. Yoko has made a massive dent in this. So Yoko is a pretty big company now with hundreds and hundreds of employees and has raised north of $100 million and has hundreds of thousands of merchants. We're five times bigger than our next competitor. Can't speak too much to where it's going, but there's some really big, exciting things that we're busy building that we should be launching next year. Effectively, what we've done very well is make it very easy very low friction, very cheap for very small merchants to be able to accept card for the first time. It's sort of like Square for Africa, nearly. Like what Square was when it started. Yes, it's a great way to think about it. Is it's like Square for Africa, except Yoko wouldn't even try to come into Australia because it's not a problem that needs to be solved yet. It's a different thing that we're solving for. But yes, there's a little device. You tap the device, you process a payment. From that perspective, it's like Square. Got it. Single product, single market. When we talk about product partnerships at Yoko, we've categorized it out into four 
buckets of partnership, which is largely taken from a really smart woman called Christina Cordova, who built out the Stripe partner ecosystem. She's super worth listening to if you're in partnerships. So number one is foundational partnerships. So in Yoko's case, this is basically our banking partners. We don't have a sponsorship bank. We cannot process payments. There is no business. Okay. So foundational partnerships the partnerships we simply cannot exist without. Second one, let's talk about what we call product development partnerships. A lot of companies will call these technical partnerships, but these are when we integrate or use another company's technology so that we can offer a better experience or a better product that we don't want to build ourselves. So for example, we have got a partnership with a company called Stitch. It's an open banking platform. We have integrated and partnered with them so that we can offer our merchants an instant EFT product. The third one is what we call distribution partnerships. When we partner with another piece of technology to reach an audience that we probably would otherwise not get to. So it's not just distribution. So for an example of this, and I'm just literally making this up, surgeons would never come to Yoko. Like we're just not something that they would think about. Let's say we partnered with like a piece of software that surgeons use that like captures the surgeon market. And then we partnered with that piece of software to be able to offer payments within the surgeon's invoices. That would be a distribution partner. And then the last one is what we call platform partners, which is what a developer or a technical person like you guys would call like an API or an SDK that's open to the world. So like that's when other people come to us and build on top of our technology, quote unquote, without our permission. They just use our SDKs and our APIs to build their stuff. And most typically in our world, those will be point of sale providers who want to offer their customers the ability to bring Yoko terminals into their ecosystem. So those are the sort of four things we're talking about from a product partnership perspective. Chris, does that paint a picture for you? That paints a very clear picture for me. Thank you very much. And the primary concern you're having around this is, well, how do you measure the success of this? There's another word in there that's critical and it's how do you objectively or how do you measure objective success, right? So I've spoken to a lot of quote unquote partner experts globally, very smart people, very cool people, a very open community, but I've yet to actually get an answer to the question. Something that I've always tried to bring into my leadership practice is like a scorecard, right? Like a simple version of, okay, guys, what's the target? What can we actually influence? What's forward looking? Where are we now? What's the delta? What are we going to do in the next seven days to move half a percent towards it? So the difficulty in measuring product partnerships, you're not alone. I can tell you my eng manager and I at Uber, when we were building the developer platform, which was essentially that fourth category that you were talking about, platform partners, right? We went around and around and around in circles for our squad and with our product partnership friends to try to come up with numbers that the business could digest, believe, invest in, support. And it is very, very difficult. So in some ways, you're going to maybe walk away from this conversation feeling let down again, because there is no silver bullet. But what makes it worse is a couple of things. The first is each of those categories is probably going to need to be measured in a different way because they actually serve a very, very different function in the business. And each of those will have a way of slicing and dicing that will change things even further. So for example, the distribution partnerships and the platform partnerships, there are strategic third-party developers and then there is the mid tail and then there's the long tail. And so the strategics you're gonna be measuring based on volume, on brand, on impact, something to do with innovation and uptake. And on the long tail, you're gonna be looking at active developers because the different parts of the distribution curve accrue different value to your business, to Yoko. The big strategics, they just drive volume, pure numbers. It's just how much business is this contributing to us? 
the mid guys, they're contributing, as I suggested, innovation. They're agitating and innovating and setting the light for the big guys. They're like moving the big guys to act. And the long tail, they're the opportunity for the Cambrian explosion, the unintended consequences where a Slack or an Uber or an Airbnb pops up in the Apple ecosystem and they just didn't predict that. That's a thing that they could not have designed for, right? And that's what you're hoping will come out of that long tail and that mid tail. And the other reason it's complicated to measure is because there's a big lag. So it takes days, weeks, months, <laughs> years to build the product, to build the API, to build the touch points, the policies, the developer dashboards, what have you. And then you have to go find a launch partner to go implement what you built. And then you have to convince them to build it the way you want them to build it in order to affect the kind of change you want them to change. And then they have to iterate and experiment on their own side. And so there's like a multi-link journey, which is like this whippy tail that just is very hard to control. And there is this flywheel that builds up, which is the more customers you have, the more developers you might have, which would drive more customer adoption, which would drive more developers. And so this is a long journey. It's kind of like its own business within the business. And that business will have a long innovators dilemma, kind of trough of disillusionment with a hockey stick that doesn't happen for two, three, four, five years down the road. Again, I'm talking in particular around the distribution and platform partnerships because that's actually my specialty area. And then the final reason why it's hard to measure is because actually many, if not all of these things in my world, and I'm a product guy, I come from the R&D department, not the partnerships department, is these things should be product-led, not partnerships-led. So in theory, the product team should be coming to you and saying, Mike, we need a foundational partnership. Like we need another bank or we need another tech vendor to solve this feature we want to build, but we don't want to build it from scratch. Or, hey, there's an opportunity here to turn this into an API and add it to the SDK. Or here's a part of our app that we think is an opportunity, a surface area for extensibility, like a Slack bot. And so you almost need to spend a whole bunch of time aligning your OKRs with the product OKRs and measuring your impact on the product velocity versus on your own team in and of itself. I'm coming at this more from first principles and by analogy rather than by experience, because this concept of product partnerships is not one I'm deeply familiar with as Chris is. But where Chris finished was kind of where I started, which is that those four categories make sense, right? What they have in common is that you have to partner to do them, but the underlying reasons for doing them and the measures for success are completely different. Something like a technology partnership, well, that's part of the product roadmap, whereas a distribution partnership is part of your growth strategy, completely different. When I think about how do you measure the success of anyone, I think you always want to do it in terms of business outcomes. What you often see in the world of product is you don't measure the impact of product managers and engineers and product designers separately. You need to set goals for that squad. You say, this is what we're trying to achieve and we're all going to work together to achieve it. So in the same sense that engineering is a means to an end, partnerships are a means to an end. And so I think thinking of partnerships as this sort of silo where you're like, okay, how do we measure the success of partnerships is the wrong way to think about it. The question you should be asking is, how do I make sure that partnerships has a seat at the table when we are discussing our business objectives and we see where partnerships fit in and we set collective goals that product partnerships are held accountable to alongside their cross-functional collaborators? Yeah, this is really good to hear because this is where we're at at the moment, right? So we're iterating pretty quickly. So it's really aligned on this and really good for me to hear this because where we are currently is we've shifted where we sit in the business. So we're sitting under the product strategy function, which is actually, it makes a lot of sense. The second thing is Yoko operates in tribes, so cross-functional teams that align around, let's say, a common objective. 
And one of the first things we did when I arrived was to embed a senior product partnerships manager into each one of these tribes. It was a bit of a struggle, but now we've gotten there and it's made a big difference where they're involved in every one of the conversations. They're sitting on the leadership team within the tribes. They're talking about the partnerships. They're saying, hey, this is what's coming down the pipe. They're saying, you might be talking about right now and that's cool, but I need to be thinking about what's coming in a year from now or two years from now versus just simply taking a directive from a product manager saying, hey, we need a QR code partner, go find us one. Like that's not really valuable. An EA could do that, right? So you're hundred percent right guys. And this is the challenge, right? Is because I agree that it's not a silo, like absolutely not. This is an enablement function. Like it's enabling the product teams, right? Which means one of the measurements is kind of like net promoter score almost to the tribes. Like how supported are you feeling by product partnerships? Are you getting what you need, right? How are we doing as a tribe, right? I do also think it's important to have an objective measure for the product partnerships function as a whole. And I like to experiment with stuff. So at the moment, we are sort of experimenting with a set of measurables and let's get into those and you can attack them and tear them apart. So we kind of know anecdotally and actually through some data that where a customer is interacting with multiple product partnerships through your application, there is a higher total lifetime value and a higher stickiness. So if they're coming in through your app and in your app, they're interacting with multiple partnerships or products through the app, you're increasing stickiness, right? Now, there's an assumption here that it's the right partners. Obviously, if you have shitty partners, you're going to have a shitty experience. So we kind of know that, right? Like we know that that's true. And therefore, there's a baseline that we're busy doing this now with the data team. We're looking to find out how many of our merchants are interacting with how many partners and within that, the segmentation. So as we're going deeper and deeper into our higher value segmentation, is there a correlation? Is there an effect between the better quality users and the number of partnerships as like a baseline, as like a start line? And let's say, for example, you know, we learn that I'm going to pick random numbers here, like 30% of our target segment is interacting with more than three product integrations. That's kind of like a start line. Then we might start saying, well, how do we get that to 40%, right? So that's the sort of very broad one. The other thing that while I was smiling while you were talking is you guys are absolutely right. Each one of those four categories need to have very different and very specific measurements. And we're also working on those. So super interesting. So as you were talking about that way of measuring the product partnership function, I'll come out and say my first reaction is to strongly disagree with that way of measuring. It's nearly like saying, oh, okay, as an engineering function, we measure the success of our efforts by how many lines of code get executed every time a customer comes in. It's a very inward looking measure. And I think it, it has the potential to create some perverse incentives, such as pursuing unnecessary partnerships and sticking partnerships in where they're not needed just to be able to do that. And on top of that, we've all been discussing the fact that the four different types of partnerships are very different from each other. And so saying, well, as long as it touches a partnership, you know, that shows it as value, I think is not really a good way of doing things. Now, this is a somewhat more controversial take, but it's something that in my practice, I've still not cracked a great solution on. There is always a desire to measure one's function's effectiveness in isolation. And I think there are certain operational metrics you can talk about in terms of, you know, time to close a deal, things like that. But ultimately, if you're measuring your impact, my position is trying to isolate your impact from the rest is ultimately a fool's errand. And so when you say, what is the effectiveness of the partnerships team? It is simply the efforts in which the partnerships team is involved. Are they successful efforts? Do you work well 
as part of a cross-functional team to deliver value. I've had lots of conversations with leaders, with CEOs, and you know, we say, oh, I want to throw it to choke or whatever. I want to hold individuals accountable. And the fact is, as tempting as it is, it is just fundamentally at odds with how great products get built. And so you just have to kind of accept that impact needs to be measured at the squad level, at the tribe level, and that you can certainly have your internal operational metrics that you're optimizing for, but do not confuse those for impact. Oh, this is great. This is a fantastic conversation. So I hear you on dangerous incentives and having led a software development business for a long time and not being a software developer, we won't go down this path, but like we spent a year and a half trying to look for a metric to objectively measure software developers and we just stopped. We just stopped. Right. It sucks. It sucks. They all suck. Because it <laughs> sucks. Right. And it was actually a beautiful experience because we started realizing what really, really mattered to high quality engineers. And it had nothing to do with objective metrics. Right. And luckily, two of my business partners are very strong engineers. So that was an amazing experience for me. I was the dickhead in the room going, of course, we can find a number. Of course, we can have a metric to say whether they have a good day. And, and I was completely wrong. Right. Like completely and utterly wrong. So. I hear you on the danger of negative incentives, like just get more partners, guys. I don't want to go down that avenue. I think there's space though. And this is where it's difficult without me giving you context of what we're building in the business. But I think there's space though at a certain point with a certain strategy where there is a point in time or a period where we actually do need to focus on more partners, but within a bunch of guardrails. So I agree with Yanev in principle, which is you are trying to get to a false precision and you need to be thinking of yourself in the context of the squad. And also the other point he makes, which I think is the answer to your question now, which is conflation. You are conflating these different kinds of product partnerships together and they each actually need to be measured and embedded and behave differently. So the way you measure foundational partnerships and product development partnerships, which I would just call vendors, is did that tribe's feature ship and did that feature deliver the impact and value that it was intended to deliver, right? So if you're unlocking EFT transactions, you said, well, did EFT transactions ship and did it deliver value? And did your team specifically find the right EFT partner, negotiate the right terms, close that deal and end up with a multi-year successful partnership as part of that whole thing? And so the thing you measure there is the tribe's success in terms of the shipping of that feature and in terms of their overall mission. The other two categories, distribution and platform partnerships, again, are more in my wheelhouse and are more discreetly measurable. So the measurement of success for distributions is more directly partnership related and more directly attributable to partnerships. So of the distribution partnerships we signed up, what new transaction volume did it drive? What new active users did those distribution partners create? What new markets did it help us break into? That is a directly attributable metric to the distribution partnerships that partnerships was able to drive. But even then, it should be in the context of a squad. There should be a squad building the APIs, the SDKs, the enablement to go get those distribution partnerships. And that squad lives or dies by how many partnerships did they close? What was the time to integration? What was the impact of new users, new transactions, new retention? And so they live and die together by those metrics, but the partnerships team has a greater visibility or a greater attributability to that success. And I think where you're going, perhaps, because that's where I would be going if I was Yoko, 
is in the platform partnerships, is in this, how do you enable third parties to build innovation on top of the Yoko platform, both on platform. So think of Slack bots, you know, how do you surface value inside the first party consumer app or merchant app and off platform? How do you power like Stripe? How do you power third party applications? And that's an entire ecosystem that has to be built with guardrails and policies and brand guidelines and what have you, and is very partnerships heavy and can be directly attributed to partnerships behavior, but even then should be embedded in a squad called the developer platform squad, which would be thinking about SDKs and APIs and developer portals and stuff. And again, there, the partnerships is kind of more naked, more laid bare in terms of their behavior directly being attributable, but it's still in the context of a cross-functional team. So... I agree with everything you said there, except one point, which was when you mentioned the vendors, right? So this conversation around vendors versus partners comes up a lot. And some of the technology partnerships aren't actually partnerships. They're just vendors. How do we differentiate between the two? If there is something to meet and discuss and optimize and do things about on a monthly cadence, they're probably not a vendor. That's a partner. If it's like, what are we going to talk about every month? We sign them up, we negotiate the contract, we implement it. Was it successful? Wasn't it successful? That's a vendor, right? But if we talk about like the open banking type of partnership, that's not a vendor, that's a partnership. And I'll illustrate what I mean by that. That's not a case of going, hey guys, let's integrate this thing. Is it done? Did it go well? Didn't it go well? There is a lot of stuff that needs to be, not just can, but needs to be discussed on literally a weekly basis. Marketing campaigns, optimizing how we're doing it. How are we rolling it into our different products? Who's going to be doing that? It's not a vendor relationship. The nature of the agreement is not a vendor relationship. We have vendors as well, which we don't deal with. There's quite a big difference between those two things. And it took us a while to realize this. It took me a while to go like, guys, we have nothing to discuss with these people once the integration is done. Therefore, they're a vendor, guys. We don't actually have anything to add here. I absolutely hear you. So what I would say there is what you need to try to find a way to do is move from bespoke, one-off partner product integrations you want to build a standardized way for these third-party creative integrations in your first-party products to occur at scale. So again, the example here is Slackbots or Apple apps, you know, in the app store. It's how do you programmatize the opportunity for those third parties to creatively bring their innovation to your surfaces, your apps? And how do you standardize the programs by which you qualify, evaluate, onboard, integrate, align on brand and do partnerships marketing. And then that program, as I alluded to earlier, should have its own metrics, its own OKRs. And those are what the developer platform team, what that overall team is gold on. And so again, it folds into the mission of that kind of partnership. So I'm saying two things there. One is if I were you, I would find the way to scale that so that they're not bespoke conversations. And number two, I would make sure that those partnerships people are gold by what they're trying to achieve, not a generic product partnerships goal. You know, what you guys are saying is really welcome, to be honest, because it aligns to the, the culture of the business, the way we've structured the business, effectively in our language, indexing or being more focused on the tribe outcomes, the tribe success and being a contributing function, which is probably not going to result in like a number. There's probably not going to be a number. And this actually comes back down to what you were talking about in the beginning, Chris, which is like, this is probably me causing a problem that isn't actually there. And because I'm like a small business founder that obsessed around scorecards and metrics, because we were a services business. And if we didn't have those, we wouldn't have a business. I'm probably actually the problem. 
because my nature is to go like, I need to see a scorecard. I need to have very close accountability around the scorecard. We need to be creating actionables in a really tight loop around the scorecard where possibly this isn't actually the way to do it here. So really interesting food for thought for sure. I'm still going to continue looking at some of these metrics because I find the process very useful and educational. <laughs> But I think it's been good to unpack this because you guys are absolutely right. I mean, our business is structured around this collective, collaborative, cross-functional goals that we're orientating around. And we are creating our OKRs and we are creating our strategy around these cross-functional goals. So that's cool. We're doing that and it makes sense. I suspect that I'm getting my knickers in a knot for something that's going on in my head. And that isn't actually a problem in the business, which is good. I would say, Mike, that you are not unique in this. As I said earlier, not only do partnerships people struggle to find metrics for partnerships, it's the product managers and engineers and designers in those squads, those squads that are very partnerships heavy, really struggle to do this. And they struggle not because they come like you from a small business entrepreneur mentality, but they come from the traditional school of product management where they're taught that you need to measure your outcomes and have a hypothesis and experiment and all this kind of stuff. None of that works with developer platforms and partnerships. It's nonsense. What you need to do is you need to think through what is the kind of extensibility I'm trying to create in the world? What is the surface areas I'm trying to open up? What kind of innovation do I want to create? And how do I create APIs or partnership rails that are opinionated enough that they create specific outcomes, but not so opinionated that they extinguish all opportunity for innovation and variation? And you need to not control the edge-to-edge -edge pixels and the edge-to-edge -edge experiments. You need to create space for other product managers, other designers, other businesses to succeed. And that is not the traditional thinking of most product managers, of small business operators, of entrepreneurs. It's, I want to control the whole stack. And I actually had a massive religious battle about this at Uber because Uber was used to measure everything, control everything, own everything, disrupt everything. And I was the guy going, hey, I'm building a developer platform where we would invite other people into our home to control parts of our experience. And guess what? I can't measure that in this time frame of a quarter or even a year because it's going to create a whole different business and a whole different flywheel. And pixels and features from other product managers are going to appear in our app. And what did the whole business do? They rejected that. Like they just spat it out. They're like, are you fucking kidding? You can't measure that. You can't justify your investment. You can't run hypotheses and tests. You can't do this in an iterative way. No, thank you. <laughs> and it's like, this is a very common anxiety that people of all backgrounds in traditional product and business development get very uncomfortable. Even the idea that you leave money on the table for your third parties to reap, yeah. that you're leaving some oxygen for a partner to benefit from. They're like, what are you talking about? We should be charging a tax and we should be charging integration fees and we should be charging like, guys, we want to leave as much money on the table as possible to incentivize a massive Cambrian explosion a la the App Store, a la the Slack bot store, a la Salesforce apps. You need to unlock this latent value and have all these other third parties invest in us. And this is counterintuitive thinking to most people in most businesses most of the time. Kudos to Yoko as a business. Like nobody's breathing down my neck around these metrics. I'm creating this, which is great. Like from a founder perspective and from a sort of cultural perspective, I think the business leans more to what you're saying, which is really good. It's a really, really good thing. Like I'm the one that's going, I want to show it. No one's asking me for this. Like it's me that's causing this, right? 
You know what's really funny, Mike? We had a proverb that was like the internal call to battle at the developer platform team at Uber, which was actually an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go, go alone. alone. If you want to go far, you go together. Go together. It's literally the top of my notion board for their function. Right, exactly. And it, and it, it was the counterculture movement at Uber because Uber's experience and historical evidence was go fast, go alone, disrupt. And we had to continually educate the business. Like, this is how we get to where we got fast and now if we want to go far we need to bring people into our home it's so funny that it's an african proverb i think it's built into the african dna exactly if you speak to anyone from south africa they'll know that it's a super well-known phrase but there's actually i was listening to a podcast yesterday and there was such a great insight that i got from it which was like everything you listen to in partnerships and this was kind of my point in the beginning almost everything is very indexed around commercial partnerships right like channel sales etc which is not what we're doing right but there's a lot of learnings to be gotten from it and there was a very cool, like just a nugget of gold. And one of the guys was talking about this fundamental shift that partnerships and partnering is bringing to the world. It's pretty simple. Like before the sort of partnerships world and companies like Crossbeam that are doing partner mapping and stuff, you only had one database, which was your company's database. But now what partnerships has done is it's opened up like combining databases, combining the number of customers that you have. And it was a bit of an aha moment for me because there is so much more power in that because that shifts from like previously companies would go, we'll do it all alone. Now we're going, hold on a second. If we're going to partner, we've got all of our hundreds of thousands of customers, but you've also got your hundreds of thousands of customers, which of them overlap and how do we work together to actually combine those two things? And you know, there's cool partner mapping software like Crossbeam, which we haven't looked into properly yet, but we're going to, that can unlock what previously just wasn't really possible because of the opposite of this, like, if you want to go far, go together thing, because of this notion of like, no, 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 we have to do this all by ourselves, which I think is nonsense. And like I say, I've got to be clear and give kudos to Yoko because as a business, they're actually very open to and sort of push what you guys have been speaking about. This is a mic problem. I think I'm creating this problem, right? Super valuable discussion, guys. Lots, lots for me to think about. You talked earlier on about partnerships being an enablement function. And I actually feel that in a really high quality modern startup with a cross-functional structure and squads and so on, any function viewing itself or being viewed as enablement rather than as a core part of the process is actually missing an opportunity, right? We, in general, shouldn't have many cost centers at a startup. Everything should be a profit center. That way of thinking is like, how do we create value? Not just how do we enable somebody else to create value at the lowest possible cost? And so I think there's that sense of once you do that, it changes your sense of ownership and what it is that you own in a way that allows you to be more impactful. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting you say that, you know, because it's actually good validation or inspiration for something that we're working on at the moment within the function, which is granted, we do still sort of talk about ourselves as an enablement function. Yet there's a process that I run and I've started doing it with my team, which is like, I call it the brutal truth process, right? So it comes out of Jim Collins, some of his stuff and Viktor Frankl's thinking and the Stockdale paradox, that sort of stuff. And that leads on to sort of a crawl, walk, run way of thinking, right? So just like, where are we now in our baby phase? What do we look like when we can walk? And what do we look like when we're really running and have grown up? And one of the sort of themes at the moment is that we need to shift from being reactionary as a function to leading as a function. So even though we're calling ourselves an enablement function, the language we're using internally is like, don't wait. Don't wait anymore, guys, for the tribe lead to say, go and research X. Just go and do it. Because from a partnership perspective, we can lead. There's parts that we can absolutely lead and we should lead. There's other parts where we should follow. And what you've just said is really just put that into a really nice little bow for me, which is like, we should change the language from an enablement function. We're doing that though, sort of intuitively internally.
there's a couple of examples today where the words being used or the curiosity is betraying the underlying thinking. There's kind of like a cross purposes going on, right? So you're saying we are embedded in tribes, but we want to measure the function generally. We are thinking of ourselves as leaders, but we use the term enablement, right? So it's almost like when startups pivot and they call themselves something different and they think of themselves as something different, but the pricing strategy hasn't changed. Like they forget to pivot the whole business over. So I think you need to finish the pivots in your thinking that it is tribe based and therefore the metrics are by tribe and by purpose. It is a leadership function. So dropping any legacy thinking about the enablement piece and make sure that you're fully pivoting your thinking. And perhaps that's part of the overall pattern here. And then I'll say in regards to what partnerships people can do to lead in my world as a product manager and as a person who's run a developer platform in close collaboration with partnerships, the kind of leadership I wanted and what I would imagine that your product managers would want is to help map the possible partners out. What are their categories? What are their commonalities? What are the considerations in terms of brand and policy and legal and what have you? And how should the product manager think about generalizing those relationships? Because I think the tendency of partnerships is to be too tactical. Say, well, oh, no, no, you can't generalize this. Each relationship has to be bespoke and we have to figure it out. But what product wants from partnerships and from the world is what are the common aspects of this? Help me map the world. Help me stack rank these partnerships. Help me have some launch partners in the can ready for me to collaborate and coordinate with. And help me write the T's and C's. Help me programmatize this so that it becomes a conveyor belt, a production line, instead of a series of bespoke conversations. Partnerships can really lead there and get out in front to inform the product strategy and then ultimately to take on executing the partnerships when the time comes. Yeah, that, that's really useful, Chris. That last bit you said there, I don't know how to do that, but it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a very worthwhile thing to get into. Awesome. Guys, lots of value today. Really, really good. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Chris, what's the best way of working with you? I've carved out some time to work with startups directly. So feel free to learn more about that over at chrissar.com slash advisory. Don't forget the Startup Podcast is powered by you, our wonderful listeners. We get such a kick out of people reaching out to us. Please rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, leave us a written review. And don't forget to share us with your friends on social media. Sharing with others is a really important part of how we build what we are building. Catch you in the next one. Thanks, Chris. See you later.